I'm so glad our friend Tim was willing to come today uh, and share with us about the Gideon ministry. We, of all the mission endeavors we do, we usually partner exclusively with uh, Baptist and Southern Baptist missions, but the Gideons is just too good to miss out on getting to be a part of. As Tim said, how do you go about getting faith if you don't have faith? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. What better ministry than to put Bibles all over the place, to put Testaments, New Testaments, where people can receive them. Uh, I'm glad we get to participate in this ministry, and I'd be happy for you to as well. As he said, there are separate Gideon offering buckets out by our tithe buckets in the lobby, and, uh, and so please participate that. I'll try to remember to tell you that again by the end of the service, uh, on our way out by way of reminder, but I'm always happy that we participate in that because of how important the Word is. So, are you ready to hear the Word of God today? Well, then let's do it. Uh, you can open with Scripture with me to Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34. I'm reading out of the house Bibles that are in front of you. If you didn't bring your own Bible, please. It's not, is it me? I'm not moving. <laughs> me. It's almost like a pleasing ocean noise in the background. Uh, 703 in the House Bibles, page 703 in the House Bible, or Jeremiah chapter 34 is where we will begin today. Now, today I am going to enlist all of you as the jury. You're a jury today, okay? I'm going to present some evidence to you, and you give me the judgment. I'll present the evidence, you tell the verdict. What should we do? All right? Hey, before I get going, I can use a handheld if this one's not going to work out. You have an opinion? You want me to use the handheld? It's the pulpit? Wait, you want me on the pulpit? Will it stay working? Do you want me to turn this one off? I turned it off. Who knows? This is why I like us being a low-technology operation. I, I, it just doesn't work. It never does. The promises of technology have never once been delivered upon, I swear. We'll begin in Jeremiah chapter 34, and what we're going to receive across a few chapters here are certain pieces of evidence leading up to the judgment of Jerusalem. See, I think that one's going to come and go. Oh. Oh, it's the organ. Do you want me to use, my, you want me to use this one again? All right, hold on a second. It's the organ. All right. Is this one back on? Does it work? Somebody in, uh, somebody in the multipurpose building, is this one working? All right, good. Just a couple weeks left, and we'll be in our new sanctuary altogether. Have you seen it? By the way, if you haven't walked through yet today, they've cut the air conditioning on, so it's a great day to walk through. Just letting you know, it's nice and cool in there on your way out to take a look and see how it's going. All right. So Jeremiah chart at 34. We'll start there, and we'll look at a couple of different little sections across a few chapters here, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. I present them to you today as evidence of God's generousness, of God's graciousness, the failures of King Zedekiah of Israel, and other examples of faithful people. And then we'll work together at the end to decide the judgment. Begin by reading in Jeremiah chapter 34. Now, this tells the story of King Zedekiah releasing certain Israelite slaves. They had a system where if you became uh, very poor and indebted to somebody else, 
In Israel, you, an Israelite, could sell yourself into slavery, but you couldn't be kept, but only for a certain number of years. And then you had to be released again. So you could sell yourself, being an Israelite, to a fellow Israelite into slavery, but only for a certain number of years to pay off your obligation, and then you had to be freed. There's a problem with this system. What's that problem? Yeah, the people who were ruling never released those fellow Israelites. And as we arrive here in chapter 34, they're in a real problem because the king of Babylon is right there at the gates laying siege to Jerusalem, and the only, everybody is gathered up into the city walls, into Jerusalem, all the slaves and all the people, and they need more soldiers on the wall. They need more watchers and more people who are willing to fight. Because if Babylon breaks into those walls, all those people who are fighting are going to be killed, and anyone who looks like a slave will simply be transferred in slavery to another place. You can hold up your hands and say, I'm just a slave, you know, don't, don't, don't hurt me, and you wouldn't be hurted. You just continue being a slave for someone else. So King Zedekiah and the leaders, they offer freedom to all of the slaves, the Israelites who are enslaved. They said, listen, we'll give all of you your freedom if you will fight with us as well. They needed more people on the wall. They needed more soldiers. They said, if you'll fight with us, you'll be free. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Zedekiah says. I'm going to make a promise to you. You fight for us, we'll give you your freedom. Sounds like a good deal, yeah? What's the problem? Chapter 34, verse 8. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem, proclaiming freedom to them. As a result, each was to let his male and his female Hebrew slaves go free, and no one was to enslave his fellow Judean. All the officials, the people who entered into covenant to let their male and female slaves go free in order to not enslave them any longer, they obeyed and they let them go free. Afterwards, however, they changed their minds and they took back their male and their female slaves that they had let go free and they forced them to become slaves again. I give you this piece of evidence to demonstrate the evil of King Zedekiah and the Israelites here. What could be worse than to break a promise? How, let me, how many times do you hire a contractor who makes a promise and flat out lies about it? How many times are you going to work with a business with a subcot with somebody? How many times will you rehire a person who makes a promise? completely flat out breaks it and says, oh yeah, about that. No, we're not, we're not going to do that like we said we were going to do. Moreover, this is to remind you of somebody else who's already come in Scripture. When you read the Israelites acting like this, they're not the first people in the Bible to act like this, are they? You might recall, if you think for just a moment, about a certain king in Egypt who has some slaves and he gets a message from God, and he says, okay, you can go free. And then he changes his mind, and he says, actually, no, you can't go free. And he does this repeatedly. You are to understand that the leaders in Israel are acting like Pharaoh himself. 
Now, this nation of God, these freed people are acting like Egyptian slavers, just like they came out from. This is detestable in everyone's eyes. Let me present to you another piece of evidence. Chapter 35, if you flip the page. Chapter 35, Jeremiah presents to us uh, a counterfactual, a separate piece of evidence here. He tells the story of the Rechabites, a family who has been living with the Israelites but is not Israelites since the very beginning of the nation. If you go back and read through the Old Testament, you'll discover these Rechabites are the descendants of the Kenites, which are the descendants of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. They were there from the very beginning of the time of Moses, and though they weren't descendants of Abraham, this is Moses' father-in-law's children and descendants, yet they were always there at work and making peace with the Israelites and living in the Israelite land and having peace and prospering there, and they were there even up till now with the destruction of Jerusalem, and they were camped out inside the walls of Jerusalem with everybody else because it was the only place that was safe to go. God sends Jeremiah to these Rechabites in order to prove a point. Here it is, chapter 35, verse 5. Here's what Jeremiah does. I set jars filled with wine and some cups before the sons of the house of the Rechabites, and I said to them, Oh, drink wine. But they replied, We do not drink wine. For Jonadab, son of our ancestor, Rahab, commanded, you and your descendants must never drink wine. You must not build a house or sow seeds or plant a vineyard. Those things are not for you. Rather, you must live in tents your whole life so that you may live a long time on the soil where you stay as a resident alien. We have obeyed Jonadab, son of our ancestor Rahab, and all his commanded us, We haven't drunken wine our whole lives. We, our wives, our sons, our daughters, we have not built houses to live in. We have not planted vineyards or fields or seeds. We have lived in tents and we have obeyed and done everything our ancestor Jonadab commanded us. However, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched in the land, we said, come, let's go into Jerusalem, away from the Chaldeans and the Armenian armies. So we have lived in Jerusalem. He says to them, no, no, we, we, we have a promise. We have a covenant we have to keep. Our ancestors who lived in tents, they're shepherds, you understand. They, they were not to build anything permanent. This wasn't a word from the Lord. This was a, a family structure. This was just how the family lived. It was their culture and their way. It's not necessarily presented here as the right way or the way of God. Just they say, listen, no, we have a covenant with our fathers and our forefathers who said, this is what we're going to be. We are a nomadic people. We live in tents. We follow our flocks around and we graze them in the wilderness. This is our way of life. We do not drink wine at all. This is what we do and we do no other because this is the covenant that we've made and we're going to keep it. Compare these two for a moment, if you will. Because that's exactly what Jeremiah does, and that's why God has Jeremiah go to these Rechabites. And God says, these guys are keeping the covenant of their fathers, which is neither here nor there, and you Israelites can't keep your covenants to free slaves as you were freed being slaves. Many of you can understand the Rechabite position. Uh, They're a bit like the Amish in America. They live in the nation, but they're not really a part of the nation, and they do their own thing, and they follow the culture of their fathers. But many of you can remember this. You follow the practices of your fathers, some of you and your grandfathers. 
Some of you, I know, drive Chevrolet exclusively. <laughs> Some of you do. Because your father did. Because your grandfather did. This has been in the family for generations. Some of us are still long-suffering Cowboys fans, Dallas Cowboys fans, after all these years. Back. Because our fathers were. <laughs> because our grandfathers were. You know what it is to be faithful to these things. So the question is to Israel, and the question is to you. You know what it's like to be faithful. Is it really that hard to keep your word? I mean, is it really so difficult for the Israelites? Is it really so difficult to you to keep the promises that you've made? Verse 36, Jeremiah write, chapter 36, Jeremiah writes down everything that he has commanded from the Lord. He writes down a scroll. You're to understand here in chapter 36, this is his book of Jeremiah. This is the whole thing we've been reading so far these last weeks. The Jeremiah scroll, all of his prophecies put together in one book, and the way they do a book is a scroll. So he, he has the whole Word of God written down together here, and he's supposed to take it to Israel, but he can't take it to Israel. They won't even let him into the temple courts at this point. They don't even want to hear the prophecies of Jeremiah, so he's barred from the temple court. So he goes to his young uh, scribe, the guy who writes everything down for him, his secretary essentially, Baruch. And he says, Baruch, I can't go into the temple, but you can. So here's my word that come from God, from God to Jeremiah to Baruch to the people of Israel. There's no wall they can put up that will keep the word of God from them. He will speak to them. They will hear him whether they want to or not. And so Baruch goes into the temple courtyard, and he preaches the word of God to them. And the king, the king hears, and he takes that scroll, and he throws it in the fire. The very word of God is taken and thrown into the fire. Verse 4 of chapter 36, Jeremiah summoned Baruch, son of Nereah, and Jeremiah dic at Jeremiah's dictation, Baruch wrote down on a scroll all the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah. Jeremiah commanded Baruch, I'm restricted. I can't enter the temple of the Lord, so you must go and read the scroll which you wrote from my dictation. The word that the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord in the hearing of the people at the temple of the Lord on the day of fasting. Read his words in the hearing of all Judeans who are coming from their cities. Perhaps, perhaps their petition will come before the Lord, and each one will turn from his evil way, for the anger and fury that the Lord has pronounced against these people are intense. So Baruch, son of Nerea, did everything that the prophet Jeremiah commanded. At the Lord's temple, he read the word of the Lord from the scroll. Did you, did you hear this? Jeremiah sends his word to the temple, saying, perhaps, Perhaps they will repent and follow God. What does the word of the Lord say to them that day? It says that God's desire for them is that they should turn from their evil ways and receive the mercy of God. God is trying to speak to them to say, I want to forgive you, but you need to humble yourselves and repent from all these evil things you're doing. And so God sends Jeremiah, and they're not willing to hear it. So Jeremiah sends Baruch to tell them, perhaps when you hear the word of God, you'll believe it and repent. And what does the king do, I say? He takes that scroll, he takes the word of God, and he throws it into the fire. And the rest of this chapter, 
Jeremiah rewrites the scroll. God says, go ahead and write it again. And as I said, this scroll, we are to understand, is the work of Jeremiah that he spoke and dictated to his young secretary, Baruch. And I'm to tell you that that word, that book, that scroll of Jeremiah is what we are reading out of this morning. Or another way to say it, the word of the Lord did not, was not destroyed. The word of the Lord has done exactly what the word of the Lord planned to do and has gone out to everyone, not just the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but to the rest of the world to say, God's desire is that you should turn away from your evil ways and have his forgiveness that the judgment is coming and it will be intense, but that's not what God wants for you. So the word of the Lord remains long after. It's though the king throws the scroll into the fire. It is the king who is destroyed and not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord endures forever. Chapter 37, 38. It's important to see all these little pieces of evidence together. In chapter 38, Jeremiah has been kept in house arrest because the king Zedekiah knows he's a prophet of God and wants to protect him, but at the same time, he doesn't actually want to obey him or listen because Jeremiah is saying, all of you should open the gates to the Babylonians and go off into judgment peacefully. This is God's plan for your life, and God's going to provide for you. God has brought Babylon against you as his judgment, but if you will go willingly, he will make you prosper in the land. But King Zedekiah does not want to hear that. He wants to defend Jerusalem. He thinks he's got a chance. He wants to fight for his nation and keep it together. And so they don't listen to Jeremiah at all. He's been in jail. He's been abused. He's been kept in the king's courtyard. And now some of these court officials and some of these officers in the army who are really furious at Jeremiah because they think he's undermining the morale of the army by saying, stop fighting, just offer yourself to the Babylonians and God will protect you. And if you fight against them, you're all going to die. Uh, clearly, this is undermining the morale of the army, yes. And so they want to kill him. And that's what happens in chapter 38. They go to the king and they say, we want to kill him. And the king, he turns Jeremiah over to them and they throw him into a well. Now, you're to understand that being thrown into this well is not like a frat prank. You know, this is not a fraternity prank. This is not a, this is not a joke. They throw him in to kill him. This is a muddy well, a muddy cistern. You can't drop a bucket down this one anymore and get water. All there is in the bottom is mud, and he is thrown into here so that he will sink into the mud and die a gruesome death with no food or no water, nothing but sinking deeper into the mud down there. Chapter 38, verse 7. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite court official in the king's palace, heard Jeremiah had been put into the cistern. And while the king was sitting at the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went to the king's palace and spoke to the king, My lord, the king! These men have been evil in all they have done to the prophet Jeremiah. They have dropped him into the cistern where he will die from hunger because there is no more bread in the city. So the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, all right, take, you, take from here 30 men under your authority and pull the prophet Jeremiah up from the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men under his authority, and he went from the king's palace to the place below the storehouse. From there, he took some old rags, worn-out clothes, and he lowered them by rope to Jeremiah in the cistern. 
And Abed-Melech the Cushite called down to Jeremiah and said, Place these rags between your armpits and the ropes. And Jeremiah did this, and they pulled him up with the ropes, and they lifted him out of the cistern. But he remained in the guard's courtyard. There is no one in Israel who is willing to do right by God's word and by Jeremiah except this guy. And who is this guy who doesn't even have a Hebrew name? because he's not an Israelite, he's a Cushite. That means he's from what is modern-day Sudan or Ethiopia. He's, in, he's a eunuch. He's a slave. He, he is not there on his own. He has been captured at one point, brought into the king's palace, made a court official against his will, this eunuch who has had everything taken away from him and lives as a slave, and yet he comes to the kings to say, it is not right. This is wrong by God. And there's Zedekiah, who's always a little bit back and forth, but he listens to this man. And so this one alone of all the Israelites goes to Jeremiah and pulls him up from death and treats him well. These pieces of evidence I present to you because they are all related and they all culminate in chapter 39 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Don't you see? The Israelites, the very people of God, slaves that God brought out of slavery and made a great nation who gave them the best piece of land, they weren't soldiers, and yet somehow, miraculously, by the power of God, they conquered the land. They asked for a king against God's will, and yet he still gave them a good king in King David. These people who have done wrong and who have done evil, and even here at the end, even as God is trying to patiently offer them mercy, even in judgment, this God is still offering mercy to them. They are acting terribly to each other, to God and to His prophets and are condemned by the witness of all these other people who aren't Israelites. Did you hear about the Rechabites, the Kenites, the ones who aren't Israelites but can keep a covenant at least? Did you hear about Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, who is a slave and a eunuch and yet knows right from wrong and will speak up against wrong and evil? Don't you know that the promise from God for both of those people is that they would go on forever and have their lives and their inheritance? And so it happened. Israel is destroyed, but Ebek-Melech goes on with his life and continues on prospering because God provides for him. The Rechabites are not destroyed with the rest of Jerusalem but continue on because they at least know how to keep a covenant and do what is right. Chapter 39, verse 4. When King Zedekiah of Judah and all the fighting men saw them, they fled, that is the Babylonians. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the city gate between the two walls. They left along the route to Arabia. However, the Chaldean army, that's the Babylonians, pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They arrested him, and they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's king, in Rabalah. At the land of Hamath, the king passed sentence upon him there. In Rabalah, the king of Babylon slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. He slaughtered all Judea's nobles. 
He blinded Zedekiah and put him in bronze chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans next burned down the king's palace and the people's houses and tore down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzarin, the captain of the guards, uh, deported the rest of the people to Babylon. Those who remained in the city and those deserters who had defected to him along with the rest of the people who remained. However, the captain of the guards left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing, and he gave them vineyards and fields at that time. Jeremiah is shortly after this released, as is Ebed-Melech. understand why we have to read all of this and put it all together, because of the powerful witness, the evidence that it is against Jerusalem. People know how to keep promises, they just didn't because they were evil. They did wrong, even though God has loved them. God's desire to Zedekiah again and again was that he should not face judgment like this. Jeremiah had said to that king over and over again, if you will just relent and do what God tells you to do, you will go off into Babylon, but you will be treated well. You will be treated nicely and like a guest in Babylon, but you need to go with God's judgment And Zedekiah never will, so instead he faces the judgment of God. What does it all mean for us? Well, a couple of applications here at the end of Jeremiah's prophecy. First is this. You need to understand that God's judgment doesn't spew around. God's judgment is always exactly right. And it never floods over on innocent people. Ebed-Melech is taken care of. Jeremiah is taken care of and receives his life. The Rechabites receive their lives. Daniel is taken great care of. He's thrown in the lion's den. It doesn't matter. The lions won't even bite him. God provides for Daniel all the days of his life out in Babylon. Esther, Mordecai, God provides for all of his people out in Babylon, just like he said he would if they will be faithful to him. You need to understand today, God's judgment is always just right, and it doesn't spray around. It doesn't hit everybody around. It's always righteous and right and always in the right place. You know what's really handy in your yard? Roundup. Man, Roundup, is that not the most effective product for killing off things you don't want there? And yet Roundup, Roundup is, a, is, is unthinking and uncaring. Roundup just kills everything. You got to be careful with Roundup. You start spraying on the ground and you miss a little bit and your, your yard is dead. I say this from experience to you. Uh, be cautious with the Roundup because it just sprays everywhere and gets everything. This is not how God's judgment is. So I tell you today, you, should not, you would be wrong to interpret many natural disasters as God's judgment. Amen. When the tornado comes, I say that because I'm from Texas and we're close enough to Oklahoma. It's not that God's judgment is on the people of Oklahoma in general. It's the natural disasters happen because it's a broken world. Amen. When the hurricane comes, it's not because God hated those people. God has shown throughout Scripture that He doesn't destroy everyone in the town and everyone all around out of judgment for a few? Don't worry about these things. God's judgment comes and comes rightly, but it always comes precisely as well because it is righteous. You don't have to worry or live in fear of the judgment of God if you live your life righteously before Him. God's judgment will come on the nations, but for you 
you can be like Jeremiah, like Ebed-Melech, like the Rechabites. Just put your trust in God and turn away from evil today and be the kind of person who keeps your covenants. Second, understand this, God has always been more concerned with faithfulness than birthright. Always. This isn't something new that showed up in the New Testament. God has always been more concerned with who's going to be faithful rather than who was naturally born an Israelite. God has always been concerned not with who is the most gifted, who is the most skilled, who is the smartest, who is the wealthiest. God doesn't care about any of these things at all. God cares about who is going to be the person who keeps their covenants like I keep my covenants. So let me tell you today, you who feel out of place. Let me tell you today, you who feel ungifted, you who feel uneducated, you who don't think much of yourself because you're not wealthy and haven't made a lot of money for yourself. Let me speak to you today, you who don't feel like you have extreme spiritual gifts like other people that you see around you. Let me tell to you today, you who might self-proclaim that you're as dumb as a stump, none of it matters at all. God will judge you based upon your faithfulness to Him. Come, friends, you are not lacking anything that you need in order to be pleasing to God because Christ is pleasing to God for you. So anyone who will come to Him today, there was nothing anyone else had, no one who was wealthy enough that He needed them in the church, nobody smart enough that He needed them to come around here in the church. There's nothing you bring anyway, so you who think of yourselves as small or little or of no consequence, all the more come to Christ and receive the gift of getting to be Christ's and adopted into His family. He has always been more concerned with who will be faithful than who is born right or in the right place or in the majority. These things matter not at all to God. Third, let me just ask you, does God keep His covenants? Does God keep His promises? Does God keep His Word? Well, then we must do so likewise. We must be covenant keepers. The main complaint against Israel here is that they break their promises. They don't keep them. Let me make a statement to you. Keeping your word is an act of trusting God. Do you understand the connection? To keep the promises and the covenants you've made in this life is an act of trusting God. There will come times regularly in your life where it looks like being the kind of person who keeps your promises is actually going to cost you. And you know what? It will. Oh, I'm here to tell you. You make some promises and there's some costs to them. There are going to come some times when absolutely, if you, you made a commitment that you're going to do something and yet it's costing you more than you thought it would, it's hurting a little bit, it's taking more time than you thought it would, and you know what? The easiest thing, the cheapest thing, the thing that's going to save you the most time and money is to simply break that commitment and say, you know what? Never mind. I know what I said, but I can, no, we're not going to do that. It will cost you to be a person of faithfulness and a person who keeps your covenants. It is always the best, though, and it is always right because God honors the person who keeps their covenants. Clearly, the application is here for us in marriage as well as one of the greatest covenants we make in this life. 
there will come times when it seems like a good idea to break that covenant. Do not do it, friend. Keep your covenants. Even if it costs you everything, just pay the cost and don't think twice about it because God honors those who keep their covenants. And God brings judgment to those who do not because God always keeps His promises. This is what it was all leading to the whole time anyway. I tell you today, this God who brought judgment against Zedekiah and all of Jerusalem, He kept His promises to them. He was patient, and he waited, and he wanted mercy for them, but they would not have it. He sent a prophet, and when they wouldn't listen, he sent the prophet's secretary to them. He did everything that he could to speak to them over and over again. He was patient with them, and he was patient with them, and then he kept his promises. But to each person who turned away from evil and trusted the Lord, he kept his promises to them as well. And he showed them overwhelming mercy to them and their households all the days of their lives. I tell you, this God will do the same to you. This God is a God who has promised that to everyone who comes to him, he will not lose one of them. So let me ask you again, does this God keep his promises? This God has promised that if we are faithful to confess our sins to him, he is faithful to forgive all of our sins. Does this God keep his promises? This God has promised us that He Himself wants to show us mercy rather than judgment. Does this God keep His promises? Well, then come and put your trust only in Jesus Christ today, our God. The Word of the Lord has come to you today just as it did to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Don't be like the majority of people who will not hear the Word of the Lord and throw it away, but rather be like these ones who were outsiders but turned into insiders in his kingdom, who heard the word of the Lord and trusted it. Father God, I thank you so much that you were so gracious to us today and patient with us. Give us the strength to be cut. We've all, we've, all, we've all been liars. We've all broken our covenants. We've all broken our promises. Not a one of us stands righteous before you today except by the blood of Christ who died for us and made us righteous. Since we who believe live by Christ's righteousness and are forgiven by his actions, let us now act like Christ and keep our promises too. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to come forward today, you can. If you need to come and spend some time making a fresh covenant or commitment to Christ, you can come forward. You can kneel here at the steps or stand at the altars. Take as much time as you need. No one's going to bother you. If you need someone to pray for you today, come here. I would be happy to say a prayer for you. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then come forward today and enter into a covenant with him. You don't have to have the right words to say. Just come forward today and say, Jesus is Lord. Amen. We're going to rejoice with you. If you need to be baptized, come down. Let me know. We'll find a time for you to be baptized. If you need to become a member of this church and join into this covenant, you can come forward today and the congregation will vote on you for membership. For whatever reason, now's your chance. Let's stand up. Let's worship Christ. And you who need to come forward, come on. 139.